Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by our professor of New Testament and academic dean, Dr. Tommy Keene, our professor of systematic theology, Grace Utanto, our professor of Old Testament and dean of students, Dr. Peter Lee, and Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church and instructor here in New Testament in the RTSDC campus. We have a special guest today, and I'm thrilled to have him on, a good friend, Dr. Charlie Wingard, who is an associate professor of practical theology down at RTS Jackson. And so we're going to take a little bit of a break from our Apostles' Creed series to just sit down and, and listen at the feet of Charlie Wingard from just to get a little sense of his experience and his counsel for students facing pastoral ministry today. So to get that conversation started, Dr. Tommy Keene, uh, can you give us a little bit of introduction to our guest? Yeah, he's uh, he has some good feet to sit underneath. Uh, he's been a pastor, Dr. Charles Wingard, has, he's associate professor of pastoral theology, dean of students at uh, RTS in Jackson, and he served uh, a distinguished record of pastoral ministry in both the OPC and the PCA. Currently, he's senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Yazoo City, Mississippi, and has recently published a, a, a great resource for first-year pastoral uh, ministry uh, servants, uh, Help for the New Pastor, Practical Advice for Your First Year of Ministry. Charlie, welcome. It's good to have you with us this morning. We're excited to learn from you. Thank you. You're very kind to uh, have me as a guest. I wanted to start with a, a question of personal interest, having myself uh, recently moved from the kind of pastoral to a more professorial role at uh, RTS. You've obviously you've pastored churches for many years, but one of the things that's imp uh, impressed me and impressed others is that you know, in your work at RTS, as you teach, you also pastor. And I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit with us. What's the difference between you know, pastoring congregants and pastoring students, why is it important for the seminary to come alongside and pastor future pastors? And, and what's, how, how specifically do you do that? What's been your practice? And, I, you, you know, feel free to lecture me, the young pup on the campus, on how to, how to better pastor uh, students under our care. Well, I wouldn't uh, uh, pr presume to be an expert in any of uh, this, but uh, maybe a little bit about my background would be helpful to you. In 2013, uh, one of my former members, as, as a matter of fact, my former secretary uh, back in the 1990s in uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts, Miles Van Pelt, who teaches Old Testament at RTS here in Jackson, he asked me if I would like to come and, uh, and serve as professor of pastoral theology uh, in, in Jackson. Um, my wife and I, we were very much enjoying the church that we were a part of in Huntsville, Alabama. It was very uh, dear to us. We were weighing the opportunity and going back and forth about whether it was a good move for us to make. We were seeking the Lord's wisdom for that. And uh, during that time, I had a stroke. And uh, as I was recovering from that, my wife and I said, well, 
this is a good time for us to sit down and think about how we want to end ministry. Uh, it's just a reminder that we're not going to be going on in life as it is now forever. We need to think about wrapping up. And we just asked ourselves, what would we like to do? Well, our favorite part of ministry is investing ourselves personally in the lives of people. I love to visit my parishioners, spend time with them. I love to have them in my home. And I also uh, love working with uh, students that are preparing for ministry. And we decided at this time in our life, it was good for us to come to Jackson where we could just become involved in students' lives. I've been uh, teaching students, preparing for ministry for almost 30 years now. Uh, so that wasn't anything new, but the, uh, the time vote myself on a residential campus and the lives of students is really what I wanted to do. So my wife and I, we've done things uh, like hosting a book club for students where we read things outside their academic curriculum together. We have them into our home when we can. It's a little bit harder now that we moved outside of Jackson and live in Yazoo City. But nonetheless, we love having students come to our home. Uh, we meet on campus with them uh, until the pandemic. My wife would um, make a meal once a week for the entire seminary campus and for my evening classes, she would uh, prepare meals for them. So we tried to do whatever we could to spend time with uh, students, uh, invest ourselves in, in, in their lives, get to know them. I visit down in our campus housing. I enjoy that very, very much. Uh, so I try to take the time to be personally involved in students' lives. Uh, during the pandemic, especially when the campus had to close for several months, that meant getting on the phone quite a bit. I love uh, calling students, inquiring into how their semester's going, the challenges that they have. And of course, um, when I'm talking with them, when we conclude our time together, I want to be there to pray for them. I have an open door policy at the seminary. When my door's open, just come in and uh, chat. Uh, we very, very much love that aspect of seminary life on my board, and I show it to my students uh, when they uh, come up to the office. I have all the names of the students written on a board, and I tell them this is like my shepherding list for a church. It allows me to look up on this whiteboard and see the students that I'm responsible for. I put uh, uh, marks by their names, um, indicating whether I got together with them just to uh, visit in the office or to have them to our home or to sit down and have lunch with them. But it allows me each time I look into my office to see who I'm responsible for. And also if they're not marks going up beside a person's name, it's a reminder to me that I need to reach out and make contact with that student. So that I, I treat uh, the students as I would members of my own congregation. And I, to me, it's just a great joy to be a part of their lives. They're, I'm very excited about the future of the PCA, the OPC. Uh, if our students are any standard of measurement, we have uh, good things to expect in the years ahead. And I'm glad to be a part of their lives. Well, that's great. I mean, it's hard because you only get them for like three to four years, maybe five if they're particularly slow. Well, uh, I, whatever time I can have with them, I, I'm grateful for. And as a matter of fact, you know, we do these remote and sync classes now. Well, I, I, before I uh, teach those classes, I invite them to reach out to me, schedule time 
for Zoom meetings like we're having now. And um, it, it allows me to become a part of their lives, even if I'm only a part of their lives for one week or three weeks. Uh, hopefully, relationships are established that will continue in the years ahead. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about about your book? Um, introduce it, uh, Help for the New Pastor. And then I'd love to hear kind of what you think about the particular challenges that you face in your in your first year of ministry. I, I kind of think along, uh, you know, you have your first year of ministry is, is a key year. And then you have that five-year period and the types of challenges you're going to hit in five years and the types of challenges you hit in 10 and 15, 20 um, you know, what, what are, what's unique to that first year and, and what, what should we be preparing for in the next five to 10? Well, I tell the students at RTS Jackson that I am interested in their first year of ministry. Now, I, I, I hope that they have long and fruitful ministries. That's my goal. I hope 40 years from now, they can look back and just uh, thank the Lord uh, for the opportunity that he's given them to serve the church. But I'm really not uh, concerned about what they're doing five years from now or 20 years from now or 40 years from now. I'm concerned about that first year ministry. That's the make or break year for most uh, ministers. I think that uh, young ministers that begin to think about leaving the ministry uh, during their first five years, it's because of what took place during that first year ministering. Now, in my uh, working with students over the past 30 years, I've um, thought that there are two things that stand out as particular challenges for young ministers. The first is getting a set of realistic expectations. Many of them come not having any experience uh, working in the life of a church. And so when they get to their first church, oftentimes the, critic the criticism that they receive shocks them, how hard it is for them and their families to become integrated in the life of new that new church. That's something that shocks them. And if they're not prepared for that, uh, th that can cause them uh, to decide that they've misunderstood the Lord's calling uh, or that they uh, don't possess any of the gifts for ministry and they choose to leave. And so I want to get realistic expectations for students when they arrive at their first um, church. Uh, and then the other thing that uh, I've noticed uh, through the years is that because they haven't grown up, many of our students, uh, they haven't grown up in churches uh, where they've been using what I would call ministerial gifts. That means going to people, uh, becoming involved in their lives with the intent of understanding where they are spiritually, uh, helping uh, people personally to grow in the Lord. Uh, because they haven't had experiences like that, they, they don't know what to do when they show up on their first church. They don't know how to establish these strong spiritual relationships that have to exist between a pastor and his flock. And so what I want to do is give them the skills that they may not have obtained before they arrived at ministry, excuse me, before they arrived to serve at their first church. I want them to become comfortable at uh, making pastoral visits, going to hospitals, counseling, 
I, I, I want to give them at least the basic tools to get started in those areas. In addition to that, evangelism, preaching, church administration, these are all things that if uh, you're given a, a proper set of skills before you arrive at your first church, I think you'll get off to a good, good start. I grew up in a in a, in a home where my father was the most significant spiritual influence in my life. Uh, at, when I turned 11, he took a church and uh, there for the rest of the time I was in the home, he pastored a church. And my father included me in his ministry where appropriate, especially in a congregation with older people. He was taking me on visits. I saw the kind of questions he asked. I saw him read scripture to people, give brief explanations, pray with them. When I got my driver's license, uh, he would send me out to uh, go run errands for him, oftentimes to take a book to an older member in the church with the reminder, reminder remember to read the scriptures, say something, and pray, pray with them. And so in a very real sense, what my ministry now is, is an extension of what I saw my father do. And I just know that most seminarians, when they come to a seminary, won't have that kind of background. And I want to try to, in as much as I can, in the brief amount of time I have with them, uh, to give them some of those important tools for ministry. I wanted to ask you about your father because I, I was reflecting on your relationship with him and how unique and incredibly fruitful that must have been for you as a young pastor. And it, it made me think, I was thinking about how you almost in a way kind of being apprenticed by your father to be a pastor and to have that experience of the kind of day-to-day -day pastoral work. I know that's something that so many of our students as they're coming to seminary are kind of wondering about. They, they have this sense of calling, but they're not sure maybe what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm interested, you know, thank you so much for your reflections on sort of that first year and the stresses and the anxieties and the, and the things that can really burn someone out in those early periods in their ministry. I'd be interested as you've watched the pastoral ministry change, both from your father, because you're really benefiting from these kind of two generations of experience from your father to today. What have you noticed in terms of how ministry has changed? Um, and maybe it's not the core of ministry that's changed, but kind of the way in which it's applied or, or the, 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 you know, just the way that society has developed. What have you noticed as some of the kind of major changes that have taken place over the past decades? My father was a rural pastor, and I started out my ministry in rural churches. People were at home in the evenings. That's a big change. Uh, there wasn't the competition for uh, the time of my members that there is now with all the activities that take place in the evening. I remember living in New England. My um, son played baseball, for example. There were no lights at the school fields. So that, that meant uh, when it turned dark, your games ended and you just went home. And, uh, you, you know, if your members are doing the same thing, uh, they're at home in the evening, it makes it much more of a manageable task uh, to go through and meet in the homes with every one of your members, which is an important part of ministry for me. Uh, visiting with members in their homes, the traditional practice of uh, home uh, visitation, that's a significant uh, change. Uh, but I'm not ready to abandon it. Uh, what I want to do is take the visits that I can get in people's homes the best I can, but I uh, I, I realize I have to have workarounds, 
And so uh, now for things like pastoral visitations, I'll meet with the head of the family, with, with, with um, the fathers at restaurants at, and some of my churches. I've had the churches uh, pay for childcare so that I can take a, a husband and wife out uh, to uh, lunch away from the home where we weren't able to meet, having to do this on the uh, husband's business hours so we can just sit down in a restaurant and uh, have a conversation about the spiritual matters that I would ordinarily do in a home. I've uh, tried to make better use of uh, the telephone perhaps than I did in my early ministry. I've used things like Zoom now. Uh, this uh, pandemic has uh, taught me uh, another tool that I can use in ministry. But what I'm fighting against is the uh, loss of, of personal contact with mem members and what I want to discourage uh, in, um, in my ministerial students is the idea that things like a blog post or a Facebook page or a Twitter account, that these can become substitutes for personal contact with members. I don't believe they can. And I think one of the biggest temptations that uh, young men are facing now is that um, they, they, they see how many people that they can reach with a Facebook post or something on, on Twitter, on, the, on their blog, even a podcast. And, and, and they think of these as substitutes for face-to-face -face ministry. I don't believe that they are. And I want to do everything I can to encourage people to use these new tools wisely. I think they are wonderful provisions. I'm excited about them, but they're not a substitute for personal hands-on pastoral care in a local congregation. Charlie, thank you so much for just, um, especially your emphasis on relational ministry. In my experience, I, I detect a trend among seminary students that say, I just want to preach. I don't want to shepherd. And I think that's, you know, kind of dangerous trend sometimes. But I had a question regarding your experience in terms of boundaries. And so let's say you are a first year pastor and uh, you want to give yourself uh, fully to the ministry, but you also want to be careful not to neglect your wife, your children. You know, and I've seen both extremes where a pastor will have his wife fully integrated to the point where she almost feels like a, a female pastor. And then I've seen the other extreme where uh, pastors don't want their uh, wives to be involved at all because they want to protect their wives and children. Would you be able to offer any counsel in terms of uh, if I can use the word balance that pastors should aspire to in terms of taking care of God's household, but also their own household? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Before I answer that, let me go back to your uh, first point. Uh, I think it's uh, dreadful when uh, students uh, say, well, I, I, I want to be a preacher, but I'm not as interested in the shepherding aspects of ministry. Uh, that's when I have a serious conversation with the student about whether they think whether they're actually called to ministry because we're called to be shepherds we're called to lay down our lives for the sheep uh, to be under shepherds of the great great shepherd there is really no pastoral ministry apart from the the shepherding care that a minister gives God's flock so I I, I think that that's a a concern that I have that I share with you that I've seen about men wanting to detach teaching from the shepherding care that they must give their congregations. About boundaries, while balance and ministry, I, I, I'm a, a work in progress. 
I I'm, uh, still struggle with those kinds of issues. I tell my students that uh, you and your uh, wife will need to sit down and uh, be very open and honest about what your expectations are uh, for uh, pastoral ministry. Not every pastor has the same gifts, nor do their wives. Uh, the calling's on your life, minister. The calling's not on your uh, wife's life. There's no call to the office of pastor's wife. Y'all are going to have to talk seriously together, negotiate the boundaries, and decide how you're going to, uh, to approach pastoral ministry uh, together. I tell the uh, students that they cannot impose their vision for ministry upon their wives. Uh, some practical ways that I try to uh, keep boundaries uh, set in, in uh, ministry. I think it's important that husbands and wives in ministry know that when there's a crisis, when there's a death in the church, uh, somebody's taken to the hospital, those are the times that ordinarily the pastor's just going to have to drop what he's doing and get up and go. That's a part of reality in, in, in ministry. When our sheep hurt in those uh, intense situations, then we as shepherds need to be there with them. But that said, I think it's inexcusable to, um, to uh, schedule meetings over times uh, when you had planned on being at home, unnecessary meetings, uh, unnecessary evening out. I think you need to decide together as a husband and a, a wife what your home life is going to look like, and then uh, set up the appropriate boundaries to not let uh, the administrative aspects of the church intrude on that part of life. I, I think you need to ask yourself, um, young minister, do you really need to go to every committee meeting? Uh, it's been my general practice throughout uh, ministry to only go to the session meetings of the church. Uh, I, I will go to other committee meetings if they need me there for information or to repurpose a committee's work. But uh, if you're not careful, you can end up spending most of your time in, uh, in, in ministry going to meetings. And that's particularly problematic for a, a ministry family because those meetings are going to be scheduled uh, in, in the uh, evenings. And so I say, look really carefully at those places where you're asked to step into administratively in your church. Ask yourself very, very uh, hard questions. Is my presence really needed there? And if not, uh, step away. Uh, hey, Charlie, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, what you were describing earlier in terms of pastoral visitations. Uh, the way you described it, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much it just warmed the cockles of my heart. I've often felt that the pastoral visit is such an effective tool of ministry that has been oftentimes overlooked in favor of a lot of what pastors may consider more innovative doing ways of doing ministry, but it just doesn't replace just a good old-fashioned pastor caring for his people. And, and just hearing you say and describe it the way that you did just convicted me all the more that that, that is just absolutely a, a necessary skill that, that uh, is not really nurtured very well. And, and it was so great to hear you describe it that way. But I guess the question is regarding those pastoral visits, when you do it, uh, what are your goals? What do you try to um, achieve? And how do you go about doing these things in a way that's, that's been effective? And, and maybe what have been ways that you've done it that haven't been very effective? 
I try to distinguish between social visits and pastoral visits. Uh, I think it's wonderful just to go over to someone's house and to talk about um, sports or the weather or uh, things of uh, common interests that we share together as friends. I think that that's an important part of life, and I don't want to diminish that. But with a pastoral visit, it's my desire to go and to make inquiry into the spiritual well-being of a family. So that's my goal when I go. I ask um, questions about, are you having family worship? Are you finding areas of the church's life that are being particularly beneficial to your family at this time? Are there areas of the church's life where we can assist you more? Uh, are there concerns that you would like for me to pray for? And uh, so I go through you know, questions like that with, uh, with, with, with the family. I want to know whether they're praying together, reading the scriptures together. I, I, I want to uh, hear them um, talk about those aspects of their spiritual life. And uh, then when uh, the time comes to wrap up the visit, I, I'll, I'll read a passage of scripture. I'll make brief commentary on it, more, no more than two or three minutes, and then I'll have a prayer with them. Uh, when I leave, I uh, go to my car and I just write down on the piece of paper any prayer requests that they've given. Uh, I think when people share with you burdens, it's important that you follow back up with them. Uh, so if someone says they're going for a doctor's appointment or a job interview on a, on a certain day, then I make sure that I follow back up with them on that day and see how it went. If, um, if they're talking about particular stresses in their family, uh, I'll, of course, want to follow back up uh, with them. I think it pains people when uh, pastors uh, ask them, are there things that we can, I can be praying for you? And they share oftentimes very painful and hurtful uh, things that are going on in their life. And then we never follow back up with them. I think that they find that a crushing um, experience and, and conclude that we really don't care that much about them. I like to leave literature with them, uh, not, not big books, but pamphlets or book, booklets that might uh, promote some aspect of the spiritual life. Uh, these are the kind of things I'm looking to accomplish on, on pastoral visits. Uh, sounds great. Do you uh, make it a goal to visit uh, members on, in your congregation like once a year, uh, once? Uh, it, it, I mean, I, I mean, I would think that uh, that's reasonable, but for larger congregations, that might be a little more challenging. Uh, how, how does a pastor adjust uh, depending, you know, a congregation of 150 versus 500 uh, when it comes to, you know, pastoral visits and things like that? In my uh, larger churches, it's impossible for me to make an annual visit to every home in the church. Uh, it, it simply won't work out because of constraints on my time. And also just, it's very, very difficult uh, to get into the homes of many people. Uh, so um, this is like every other area of ministry. You wanna be equipping your elders to do this kind of shepherding work. You're always looking for ways to multiply your, your, your ministry. I, uh, I'll give you one example. It, it's not home visitation, but in my church in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, I, I had uh, assistants who worked with me. And uh, so if someone went into the hospital on Monday, I, and I might have the days wrong on Mondays or Fridays or the weekends, I went to the hospital and made that uh, visit to them. 
but I had three other staff members and one of them would take Tuesday, one of them would take Wednesday and one of them would take Thursday. Uh, so they've all, uh, you know, learned the basics of hospital visitation. They're all persuaded of how important it is. And I'm just sharing the ministry. I'm uh, multiplying the ministry by ha uh, having other people come alongside me and uh, do what I can't do alone. Charlie, if I could just follow up with what you just said, I realize that we don't want to say, hey, this is uh, an absolute rule for churches, but do you think that after a certain size, it really is hard to do ministry well? You know, especially if you want the church to function like a family, right? Let's say your church uh, hits 200, and then it's going to feel very different from 500. And again, I, I want to be careful to avoid the trap of saying, well, after this size, the church can't really minister well. But in your experience, do you think there is a size at which it almost becomes an organization versus a family? Well, it, it should not be uh, like that. Now, I have no experience pastoring a large church, but I have had memberships uh, in the 400s. And what, what I've uh, found there is that um, you want to uh, make sure that within your church, uh, members have smaller networks of relationships. You can say small groups, family groups, whatever you want to call them, uh, where they uh, get together and enjoy the fellowship that they would have if um, you were a smaller church. Uh, I've had smaller churches where there was, uh, it was very difficult in that small church to get people to think of themselves as a church family. So this isn't really a problem that's uh, centered around the size of the church. It's a problem that's centered around the mentality of the church. And uh, you can have a church with four or 500 members where you have uh, smaller groups where people get together, where there are networks of relationships that have been established, where people believe that they're getting the kind of care that they would get in a small church. And that's what I'm striving to provide for the people in my congregation. And to get that mentality among my elders and among the people of the congregation that, yes, uh, we are a family. Thank you, Dr. Linker. This is incredibly useful information and it's be so helpful thinking about me and starting my own ministry about four years ago when I first came back to actually church plant here. I would have been really helped by this book. So thinking back about the first year of pastoral ministry, uh, according to you and your experience in your book, what kind of experiences and even decisions in that first year that in your perspective would be incredibly crucial for the pastor to make? Because the first few years are incredibly key of, you know, it determines whether or not the pastor would actually stay and fall deeper in more deeper love with pastoral ministry or actually not stay and actually decide that pastoral ministry is no longer a vocation for him. So what would you say would be the most crucial decisions and factors to play into that? We've talked about skills, so let me uh, lay that to, uh, to, to one uh, side. Uh, though I would add to that, it's important for a pastor to think uh, through what he can reasonably accomplish. Um, in my book, I talk about trying to undertake too many things. 
uh, and I try uh, to get young men in smaller churches uh, to focus on uh, what they can reasonably accomplish in that first year and to uh, consider everything else to be a distraction uh, with regard to um, uh, you know how many times they preach. You have to be realistic about what you can accomplish as, as a young uh, minister at that stage of your life, uh, whether you're going to teach in Sunday school or not. You have to think through what you can reasonably undertake and still do um, the various aspects of ministry well. I think it's important that when you step into your first pastorate, you always look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I think that's the way we all want to end our ministry. And so uh, it seems to me we need to be thinking from day one, what are the kind of decisions I'm going to have to make that are going to enable me uh, to finish 40, 50 years from now with the same testimony that Paul uh, shared with Timothy? And you're, you're going to want to have a strong devotional life. That should be something that's non-negotiable. Uh, uh, you want to uh, establish uh, with your family uh, a habit of family worship. That should be uh, non-negotiable. You want to uh, be praying as you approach the text each week, preparing your sermons. You're going to want to be praying that whatever that text, the burden of it is, uh, that that becomes the burden of your heart first of all, to change you before you ever set foot um, in the pulpit. You want to make the decision to start praying like that for yourself in the study uh, from, from day one in ministry. You also want to pray for your congregation. Uh, somebody asked me a few minutes ago, what are some of the things I'd like to do differently? Well, if I could go back to day one, I'd pray more for my congregation. Uh, you want to have regular scheduled uh, prayer time for the people of your congregation, not only for their individual needs and concerns and growth in the Lord, but also as a congregation, when they sit under the ministry of the word, you want to be praying that the Holy Spirit will work in power to open their eyes to the great truths of the scripture, uh, to cause them to cherish those words in their heart and to uh, practice them in their lives. So we want to be praying for ourselves as we preach the word, we want to be praying for our congregations as they hear, hear the word. These are things I think you would want to uh, start out on, in your ministry, day one, committed to for your lifetime. That's beautiful. I often remind our students, and it's something I have to remind myself, in the opportunities now that I get to preach, you know, having preached regularly as a pastor in the past and now in the, this current context where I have opportunities because of my role at the seminary to preach, it's so important to be praying for the congregation as part of your sermon prep. <laughs> That's one of those things that I, I learned from a, from a faithful pastor who told me early on, and I thank God for that. I think, I think that actually has a, such a significant effect on the way that you prepare your preaching and your teaching is when you're doing it prayerfully for the people to whom you are going to be preaching. Right. And that's that's different from from full time pastoral ministry. But I noticed that in sermon prep, how that's often forgotten. Going back to what Tommy said earlier and building on what you just said, uh, as professors thinking about caring for our students, what an op opportunity every time you open up a paper to grade it. That's an opportunity to pray for that student and his family. Uh, the Lord's given us as professors props every day uh, to be praying for our students. 
Ouch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just couldn't help but to feel mildly convicted just now <laughs> with uh, your heart, uh, Charlie. Just it's it's incredible. Uh, just how pastoral and and caring and loving it is. Not just the way you described your your relationship with members of the church, but even with students. And and I can't help but to just be convicted to really refine what I try to do here, even in terms of my relationship with, uh, with students. I, I did have a question, Charlie, regarding uh, first-year students, and you've obviously given a lot of thought to this, which uh, is so wise and, and helpful. There's a trend for first-year students when they graduate, when they get started in ministry, to not take a senior position or, or possibly even not take a, a solo pastoral position at, in a relatively small congregation, but to start off as an associate or an assistant and then to uh, do that for a while. And then uh, as they gain some experience to kind of move on and then possibly find a church where they can be the, the lead pastor or, or things like that. I guess my question is, what do you think of that? Do you think that's a good thing? for first-year students when they graduate to kind of take a subordinate role before they become the one and only potential pastor of a, of a congregation? How, do, how, how should students discern that decision when those opportunities are before them when they graduate? They're, you know, seminary's done, now papers, exams, that's all behind them. Now they can dedicate themselves completely uh, to the care of God's people. What's your thoughts on how students should kind of make that decision in terms of their first pastoral experience? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, uh, and of course, every uh, student's just going to have to look at the opportunities that are in front of them and make, uh, uh, make their decision. There's not a right way or a wrong way to approach the matter about whether you solo pastor or become a part of a staff. <clears throat> but what I do encourage the students to do is to think very carefully about the value of being a solo pastor. Uh, that was my experience. I took four churches right out of college before I went to seminary. I was a student pastor of four churches. And then while I was in seminary for two and a half years, I pastored two more churches. And you just get exposed to such a variety of uh, concerns in the life of the church. You become a problem solver. You learn how to figure these things out. And all the time, you're getting invaluable experience providing shepherding care, counseling, uh, preaching. You know, I preached hundreds of times before I was actually ordained uh, to gospel ministry. And, and I think all of this was a plus to that first church that I took after I was ordained. I, I tell people that when you're offered a staff position, look at it carefully. One of the concerns I have is that people get stuck in a niche. niche. They are placed, for example, uh, in the role of working with young people. And then for the next five years of their life, most of their ministry centers around working with young people. And they don't get that much exposure to the broader ministry of the church, the broader work of the Christian minister. I get very, very concerned about that. I know that when I hire uh, someone to work with me, and I've hired uh, many assistants and associates through the years, the person I'm looking to hire is somebody who wants to be a senior minister. Now, I might uh, tell them that we are hiring you to be the youth and family minister, and you're going to be held accountable for how you discharge your duties in that role. But as your senior pastor, I'm here to make sure that by the time you leave my staff, 
uh, you have all the skills and experience necessary to move on and become a senior minister. Uh, so I make sure that my uh, associate pastors get plenty of preaching opportunities. If I can't get them all in the church pulpit, I find other places for them to preach, jails, nursing homes, Christian schools, places where they can get preaching experience. I tell them that they are a pastor of the entire congregation. They have a very specific role to fulfill, yes, but they're also shepherds of the entire congregation. They need to be making visits with me uh, in homes, at hospitals, in, in jails. They, I give them opportunities uh, to moderate session meetings uh, so that by the time they leave, they can look back and say, everything that a senior minister has done, I've had the opportunity to do by being on staff at this particular church. Charlie, let me circle back around to something that we had talked about early on in the conversation. You mentioned your father and his role in your discerning your vocation, and not only discerning your call, but discerning how you would pursue your call into pastoral ministry. And there's so many so many students at seminary who are in the process of discerning a call. As you know, many of them come here and they, they feel called to something and they're not sure what it is. Is there something from those early days of you know, going with your father on hospital visits and, and home visits? Is, is there something, is there a particular time, is there a particular instance where you really realized or that it, it kind of crystallized, I'm called to do this? Yes, uh, very much so. It, it happened um, when I was um, 14 years old. Uh, I went to a youth conference in Montreat, North Carolina, and Stuart Briscoe, as I recall, was the speaker there. And uh, as he uh, preached, uh, he spoke with um, urgency about the need to share Christ. Uh, and um, I felt uh, during that conference um, that th the Lord was indeed impressing upon me uh, that I should be a gospel minister. Later uh, uh, that, that same year, we had a lay renewal series of meetings at my father's church and a Vietnam chaplain came and shared. Uh, he shared uh, uh, about how he would go on the battlefield from soldier to soldier uh, to, to pray with them uh, to urge them to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And uh, I really began to be convinced, uh, woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Christ. So since I was 14 years old, uh, I have been persuaded that the Lord was calling me to uh, ministry. My ministry has had many um, ups and downs, uh, joys, and also uh, sorrows that have been associated with it. But I can't recall a single day where I've arisen in the morning and wished that I was doing something else that hasn't uh, ha happened. And I think that um, I I'm just very grateful that providentially the Lord uh, placed me in situations where I could be influenced by older ministers and especially my father, and th that I was placed in a context where there were expectations uh, that as a young person, I not be entertained by the church, but I serve the church. I'm just very, very grateful for uh, that, that particular heritage. And by the way, whoever asked earlier about good habits to get started in ministry with what you want from day one, uh, it's imperative that young ministers have an older minister that can mentor them. 
Um, if there's not someone that's readily available in your own community, it doesn't even have to be a part of your own tradition. It can be a pastor in another uh, tradition, but someone uh, that's older than you, that's been in ministry for a while, that can hear your the trials that you're facing, that you can bring your questions to, that you can uh, listen to their wisdom. It's just imperative that from day one, you have that person involved in your life. That could be a ministry in and of itself. <laughs> it, it is. And, and I guess that's what we're all involved in now. Uh, we want to, uh, you know, I tell um, uh, the students repeatedly here at Jackson, when you um, graduate from this institution, uh, I'm here to support and encourage you throughout your ministry in any way you see necessary. And uh, so we, you know, as professors, I know we just want to make ourselves available to students as they enter into what we hope is going to be a lifetime of ministry. Hey, Charlie, I was wondering, I've been uh, out of, uh, I use the term real pastor, and by that, what I mean is pastoring a congregation on a regular week-to-week basis that, you know, most of us aren't, aren't doing that in the most traditional sense uh, of the word. But since I have stopped being a real pastor in that regard, you know, I've, I've had a real burden for fellow ministers who, who are doing real pastoral work. <laughs> Gosh, it sounds so weird. Anyway, and some of the heartaches that they face. And, and one thing that I've tried to do is I've been asked to, you know, preach around in, in different churches is to really be an advocate for these guys. Because, uh, you know, obviously better than, than uh, many how, how difficult and, and rewarding, but at, this t- at the same time, uh, burdensome uh, pastoral work can be. And we've talked a lot about words of encouragement that we can give to young uh, students as they get started in pastoral work. But I was wondering, a lot of our listeners who listen to these podcasts are not pastors. They're, they're average members of the church. Do you have any words of encouragement that you can give to them on how they can uh, support uh, their pastor from the, you know, what, what, what can they do to be a blessing to their pastors as well? Maybe just by way of personal testimony, I've been pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Yazoo City, Mississippi for the last five and a half years. And uh, I, I think that I can say with confidence, I'm still in the honeymoon stage of my ministry here. Uh, the congregation do, does so much to encourage us. Uh, they they uh, call me, they check in to see how I'm uh, doing. Uh, they uh, offer at times to come alongside and share work with me uh, uh, to lighten my uh, load. Uh, they uh, adore my wife. Uh, they. Uh, are uh, actively involved in encouraging her. I'm uh, looking over here uh, on my desk and I have a, a letter that an 18 year old a gentleman in my congregation fixing to graduate uh, from high school wrote me uh, just um, thanking me for my ministry and my care for him. And I've got a stack of letters like that I've received through the years here at Yazoo City. I think those are very important uh, things. Also, I'm very appreciative for people that, um, and this is an attitudinal issue uh, for some ministers, but there, I'm very appreciative that when members have concerns here, they um, feel very, um, I, I think they feel comfortable to come and talk with me about uh, uh, places where they think of that um, I need to provide more pastoral attention or do it in a different manner. In other words, they're offering me criticism, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm also grateful for a congregation, and 
and hopefully this is providing some suggestions for how people can encourage their ministers. Uh, but I'm also very grateful for a congregation that during a tumultuous 2020 uh, supported and encouraged me. Uh, I have been disheartened to see how many churches have split over things like wearing masks and public worship during the pandemic or when you should counsel uh, worship services. Well, in our particular congregation, uh, to a person, the people have been supportive of the decisions the session has made uh, at, and uh, have, uh, even when they uh, would have probably wished we had made a different decision. They just, they've supported the decisions we've made. And I also appreciate in a rather politically active congregation that on the Lord's day, we leave our politics at home and we come to uh, worship the true and living God and to share in our unity together. I, I can't imagine how many congregations have been fractured uh, by the political controversies that took place during 2020 and are continuing on into this year. Um, so keep, I would encourage people to keep those two things in mind, the pandemic and the uh, political tumult of our uh, country. Remember that those things affect your pastor deeply and uh, think long and hard uh, before you uh, try to prompt him uh, into controversy. I think we're all feeling feeling kind of like we just want to keep you on for the next couple of hours just so we can ask you our questions that are just legit our questions. I'm always glad to answer any uh, questions you have, Tommy, anytime. Thank you, Dr. Wingard, for your counsel. Thank you for your experience and for the way in which you steward that experience for the students of RTS, both in Jackson and around the system. And thank you for joining us today for this conversation. We have benefited much from your advice and from this, uh, just from your experience. And I know we all have a whole lot of more questions that we could ask you, but we won't keep you longer, but I suspect you might have some emails or, or phone calls in the future. Um, this has been just such, such a benefit to me and uh, just hearing, hearing some of your insights that resonate with me so well and both i think some several of us have already said this on the conversation or in the chat of this conversation feeling both encouraged and fortified and also uh convicted and challenged in how we consider this thing that we've been called to do here at rts so thank you thank you for joining us this week well th thank you for having me you're very uh, kind uh, make me your guest today. And one of the great joys of uh, serving at Reform Seminary is to come alongside and be a part of a work that's shared with colleagues like y'all. I'm very, very grateful. Well, we're grateful for you. Um, thank you everyone else for this conversation as well. It's always a joy, my friends, to gather together each week and talk about these things that we are called to do and how to do them well and how to do them most importantly, to the glory of God and to the benefit of his church. Thanks for this conversation. I look forward to being with you all again next week. Take care.
super helpful to be with y'all. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much. That, that was just tremendous, really. I'm probably not going to pray for all my students as I read their papers though. <laughs> that, that was, that was truly convicting. <laughs>